0: Beth Hemmings! Beth Hemmings? Beth Hemmings! Beth Hemmings! Heming. Yeah. really reform Radio. Turn it up!
1: Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm Beth Hemmings with you for the next hour here on Manchester's Reform Radio. About a month ago, I saw this really powerful cartoon image online that was depicting some of the threats to mankind, particularly threats to our way of life here in the UK. So on the left of this image, there's this tiny little picture of our parliament buildings with a speech bubble over the top that reads, be sure to wash your hands and all will be well. Then to the right of the buildings, there is this giant wave, which is depicting our current state of the world with our global pandemic, COVID-19. Then there is a bigger wave, a bigger, scarier wave, which is depicting Brexit. And then finally, there is this giant, colossal wave that is towering above everything else. And that depicts climate change. Right now, we're facing a man-made disaster of global scale. Our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. This year's deadly wildfires and monster storms, terrifying signs of things to come. For the Southeast, stronger hurricanes and more frequent flooding. For the Midwest, an agricultural catastrophe, hundreds of billions of dollars lost. And in the West, fire dangers exploding. The Amazon, which helps to slow
2: down the pace of global warming, has seen more than 80,000 fires break out so far this year. Right now, there are close to 2,000 burning in the region.
0: The best scientists in the world are all telling us that our activities are changing the climate. And if we don't act forcefully, we'll continue to see rising oceans, longer, hotter heatwaves, dangerous droughts and floods, and massive disruptions that can trigger greater migration and conflict and hunger around the globe.
1: Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money
3: and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare
0: you?
1: We're all aware by now that climate change is unfortunately an inevitable part of our future. We're already beginning to see the effects of climate change in different parts around the world. Some people like to deny it, even some people in power, but we won't name names. But the scientific data and evidence is indisputable. But that's what this show is about today. It's about the climate crisis and its relation with COVID-19. On the show, we'll be discussing some of the root causes of the climate change crisis and how COVID-19 may change our global outlook on the crisis with Kim Bryan from the anti-fossil fuel climate change activism group 350.org. We'll be discussing what needs to be done with our COVID recovery and the dangers of us not building back green with Extinction Rebellion's political liaison, Rupert Reid. We'll be having a stark discussion about how climate change will increase the likelihood of future pandemics with the Chair of Microbiology and Immunology at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School for Public Health, Dr Arturo deval and we'll be discussing how climate change is interlinked with racism and colonialism with the climate change and race activist and founder of Climate in Colour, Jocelyn Longdon. Now, just a little disclaimer this show isn't set up to scare you or to trigger some sort of eco anxiety, but instead, it's going to arm you with the knowledge and empowerment to do better for our environment and our collective future. So, I just want to talk super briefly about some of the causes of the current climate crisis. It's it's unfortunately all down to human activity. It's the number one root cause of climate change and there are many contributing factors, animal agriculture, deforestation and of course the big one, fossil fuels. Here is Kim Bryan from 350.org.
2: Fossil fuels are the things that are driving the climate crisis and that if we stop burning fossil fuels then we would see a rapid reduction in carbon emissions which would then have the impact of reducing some of the climate impacts that we're seeing there is so much potential with renewables with some of the solutions that we've got out there with community-owned renewables for example and when we look at how our economies work and you look at all this kind of massive concentration of money in the hands of these big energy companies and then you think about local communities or a local community solar farm or a wind farm and the potential that has in providing regular stable incomes for local communities. So there's a lot of reasons why burning fossil fuels just doesn't make any sense anymore. But we're locked into a system, our economic system, and the our energy systems are locked into this fossil fuel usage. The G20 finance minister's meeting uh, took place at the weekend. And then once again, what we're seeing is this kind of Pandering to the fossil fuel industry, and really, what we want to see is kind of massive investment in green technologies. And you know, the decisions that we make now are the decisions that will shape our future. Like, we are going to have to be seeing trillions of dollars being invested into the economy to reboost it, and it could be reboosting a green recovery for for us instead of kind of half boosting it, stuttering it, but actually still kind of pandering into the fossil fuel industry which is a dying industry, and and that's why it makes no sense to keep propping it up. I mean, it just feels that it just doesn't make any sense to be
1: supporting an industry which is really on its last legs. That was Kim Bryan from 350.org. It's the hope by many climate change activists and apparently 48% of surveyed Britons, according to Optimum, that want the UK government to respond with the same urgency to the climate change crisis as it did with the COVID-19 pandemic. There's great hope that there'll be a shift of perception and, more importantly, urgency toward the climate crisis that has been triggered by COVID-19. Here's Kim Bryan again to explain how the coronavirus might impact this shift, not only for governments, but for the public as well. I think covid-19 was a, was a
2: huge wake-up call for for all of us and as the you know as the streets fell silent and everybody could hear the birds singing again and um, pollution cleared in major cities around the world there was a kind of like glimpse of you know what what could it look like what could our future look like and there was a lot of um calls at that time to sort of build back better and it's very hard to feel empowered in a world where you know we're set up to feel quite unempowered I think a lot of the time. But if we look at what happened over the weekend we saw lots of actions in cities across the globe. We saw you know messages for for just recovery being projected onto to major institutions and buildings. And I think people are really like Despite COVID, despite everything that's happening, people are really getting together and going like, "This is the moment." I reckon. No, we are recognizing that the choices we make now are the are the choices that will shape our societies for decades to come, and that's why it's so important that we kind of seize this moment and being like, "Okay, I want to say in this," and I think there's everything to play for, and I also think that people are a lot more open to it than they were pre-COVID because. Precisely because we have experienced a change. And I think if you look at some of the polls where it says like sixty five percent of people don't want to go back to normal and it's like, no, we've seen what it's like, we've seen what it's like when we spend more time with our families. I know it's not been easy for everyone and it has been difficult, but more time with your families, more time with your children, um working from home, more time for yourself, like there's some really key values there which I think make us human and it's like actually, you know, when it comes to it, like calls for four day working weeks those kind of, you know, whole package of lifestyle and choices, which is a happier, healthier, more life, which is more focused on ourselves is is something that we all kind of strive for. And, you know, again, I know lockdown wasn't easy for everyone, but there was certainly glimpses of it, of where you were like, actually this is all right. I kind of like this. Um, One of the things about COVID, which I thought was so fascinating. And with my, you know, 350 working across the globe is that, every single person was going through it at the same time. And I can't ever remember an experience like that. The whole world is going through this moment together. And, you know, as frightening and terrifying as it was, like the world is also going through this whole moment of reshaping. It's not just us doing it in the UK. It's like actually every single country is facing these same questions. And that's what makes it such an important moment. It's a global moment to build something new.
1: Just to touch upon what Kim said there, do you feel this as well as me that this pandemic has really highlighted the interconnectivity of everything? And uh, more importantly, it's also shown us that we can all make the necessary and really significant changes that are needed when we're all faced with threat to our way of life. Rupert Reid is, among many other things, the political liaison for Extinction Rebellion. He's about to explain what the necessary changes are that we need to make in regards to the climate crisis and what the dangers of ignoring them could be.
0: In terms of our response, we need to be thinking about these things in a joined up way. And that's so crucial. So, like, do we build back faster? Do we build back bigger Do we build back better? Do we build back slower? Do we build back greener? Well, obviously, yeah, we've got to build back greener. But I would say that that should be the absolute center of the the whole thing. The way we reset from this coronavirus pandemic is going to determine, well, frankly, the future course of human history. Because this is really the last chance that we're in now to get serious about getting greener. I say it's the last chance because these opportunities for reset, they don't come along all the time, Beth. The last one that was comparable was in 2008. That's over a decade ago. So if we miss this opportunity, that's pretty much game over really for being remotely as serious as we need to be on the climate and ecological emergency because this decade is, it's well known, our last opportunity to to rein in climate change before it becomes climate breakdown and before it leads to the near certain collapse of our civilization. So really the stakes in that way couldn't be higher just like with the coronavirus pandemic it mattered so much what you did uh in uh, january february early march that's dictated most of what's happened since you had to act ahead of the clock and stay ahead of the game so there in the coronavirus pandemic uh, acting in a precautionary way was a matter of of weeks really the climate and ecological emergency timetable is much much slower it's a matter of decades rather than weeks. But the, the terrible and tragic thing, Beth, is that most of those decades have already passed. If we wanted to be precautious and rein in our damage, we needed to start acting when people started sounding the warnings in the 60s and 70s, and at the absolute latest in the 80s, when the warnings on climate became extremely clear. But here we are. It's 2020. Um, People sometimes ask me, well, you know, how desperate is the situation? How close are we to the end of the line? Is it five minutes to midnight? And I say, no, look, it's not five minutes to midnight. It's not even midnight. It's five minutes past midnight. Now, Of course, that doesn't mean it's too late to do anything. I think we can safely say that the world needs to be relocalized to make it safer that we are making ourselves fragile when we depend upon so much air travel and indeed so much long distance travel uh, in general. The future is going to be more local. It will either be more local because we choose to make it more local in an intelligent way. And that's what we ought to do now on the back of this pandemic. And at a moment when airlines are on their knees, you know, we oughtn't to be trying to pump them up again. We ought to be Closing them down, phasing them out and re-employing their workers in more productive things, you know. So the future will be more local because either we will choose to rein in long distance travel of goods and people or that reduction in such long distance travel will be imposed upon us in a brutal and uncontrolled way. In other words, I'm talking there about civilizational collapse and civilizational collapse is what is coming to us within a generation or two perhaps sooner um, if we don't completely get our act in order on the climate and ecological uh, emergency. The way of life that we have grown used to cannot be sustained. We will either choose to change it for a better way of life or that um, radical alteration of our way of life will be imposed upon us. And I say a better way of life, by the way, I mean that. If we have a relocalized future, and we will, um, then it will have all sorts of advantages um, it will mean that local communities are stronger in the kind of way that we've seen some encouraging hints of during the coronavirus pandemic. It will mean that our future is more secure. We'll be getting food that is better quality and more and more nutritious and more local. and that We know where it's come from uh, more. There's all sorts of things to gain if we're actually willing to make the big changes that we must make. And I say we must make them because if we, if we don't make them, they will be imposed upon us.
1: Rupert Reid there, the political liaison for Extinction Rebellion. Across Rupert's work, he coins the phrase, let's not jump from the frying pan of the coronavirus to the fire of the climate crisis. And that, that just rings so true for me. The fact of us building back Greener is just so important because the recovery from natural disasters caused by climate change will cost us all so much more than the cost of the prevention measures. Uh, The Financial Times published a figure that said global losses from natural disasters so far cost us three billion in the last decade. As well, they have put forward an estimated six hundred trillion will be spent on costs of inaction on climate change by the end of the century. That's an insane figure. But I will say it's hard for governments to make like swift action on climate change because the data is based it's based on a long-term basis, essentially. Sometimes it's estimations. Obviously, COVID's response has been so rapid worldwide because the threat is right there in front of our faces. But there's a risk that pandemics could actually become more like the new normal if we don't change our behaviours toward climate change. Do you... Do you remember at the start of the show when I said I'm not trying to trigger you? Uh, (laughs) But there are a few ways that scientists have predicted that this could happen. So... The first being that climate change will push people into food insecurity as rising temperatures will naturally affect the food chain. Uh, With this being the case, people might resort to bushmeat, which is essentially hunting and eating wild animals that they wouldn't normally eat, which dramatically increases the risk of new disease transmission. Uh, Like with the coronavirus pandemic, the trading of wild animals is another huge risk. Also, food insecurity could push farmers into further biodiverse areas that will destroy natural wildlife habitats, which is already sort of happening. Uh, that will force mammals and other wild species to move around and develop closer human contact with us, which will naturally result in more disease transmission. And there is another very scary one, which I'm going to let Dr. Arturo Casadevall explain to you. Dr. Casadevaal is the Chair of Microbiology and Immunology at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School for Public Health over in America. Him and his lab are also spearheading the monitoring of the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, They're using a technique using blood plasma. It's very, very impressive work that they're doing over there. Dr. Casadevaal will now explain how pathogens may begin to adapt to higher temperatures as a result of climate change.
4: Climate affects everything and therefore climate change will affect everything. So for about 40 years, infectious disease people have been worried about climate change and infectious disease. The major concern was that as you change the climate, vectors like mosquitoes may change where they live. You know, there used to be malaria in Europe. It went away uh, because it was controlled. They control the mosquitoes, they control malaria. So the question would be, If you change the climate, would some of these vectors move and bring diseases that are currently not known? So that's one concern. Today, you are protected against most of the microbes in this planet by the fact that you have a high body temperature. Your body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius. And for many organisms that are in the environment, they cannot grow at 37 degrees. But if the climate gets warmer, some of them will adapt. And that adaptation to higher temperature would then defeat your temperature defenses. And, and we think that there may be one example of that already. It turns out best that people worry about viruses, they worry about bacteria, they worry about parasites like malaria, but you don't hear them worrying about fungi, except if it gets into the nails or if it gets into the skin and in the, in the toes. But people usually don't worry about dying about fungi and the reason for that is because the fungi most of the fungi i think you say fungi <laughs> are um are, are are not very temperature resistant so most of them cannot grow at your body temperatures and the combination of your immunity and high temperature means that for us the majority of these are simply not pathogenic they cause trouble if we get immunosuppressed. For example, let's just, let's just take an example of a, a virus that, that infects insects. In generally, most of the insects live at room temperature, and most of these viruses are used to room temperature. If the temperature increases and the insects have to adapt, you know, it's gonna be hard for many of them, but eventually some will adapt, you could imagine that that organism will acquire the capacity to at least survive now. Being able to grow at 37 degrees is not enough. You need to have receptors. You need to have a lot of things to be able to cause familiar disease. But there are a lot of them. So just like COVID managed to adapt themselves to humans, the scary thing would be that all these organisms that are currently we don't have to worry about could then become things that we have to worry about. But I think that for COVID-19, we don't know where it came from. Although most people Most scientists tend to think that it's a recent jump from either bats or pangolins or some other small mammal. So this was an organism that was already temperature adapted because it was a pathogen of mammals. And then there was an exposure and then it became adapted to humans and unfortunately acquired the capacity for spread because uh, it was able to go from one person to the other. And that's how we end up with a pandemic. I see.
1: Um, so, with regards to future pandemics and climate change, um, it, could there be any other factors that contribute as well as pathogens mutate in their temperature adaptations?
4: Yeah, I think things that, all the things that contribute is increased human contact. You have people moving into areas that previously were wild, for example, cutting down forests. As uh, cities enlarge, and then begin to encroach into natural habitats, many of these animals just move into the cities. And uh, and so there is more contact. So human behavior, uh, changes in climate. Uh, another issue that we need to worry about is that medicine, the success of medicine means that we always have now a lot of people that are immunosuppressed living among us. People who are cancer survivors, people who are or you know being treated for hiv people who get transplants and these individuals are at greater risk so if anything gets into one of them uh there is greater the possibility that it could then spread so i think the important thing is that all these things are multifactorial that there isn't only one thing but certainly Climate change is something that we need to put on the radar screen, and we're going to worry about it more than we have in the past. I think that one of the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I believe, and I'm optimistic, I believe that we're going to get this under control, is that people are going to be very sensitized to the dangers of new viruses and new pathogens, and that I like to think that humanity is going to put in place more defenses into the future um what do i mean by that for example it you could imagine um more surveillance to know what's out there that is potentially dangerous so as an optimist i like to think that this terrible experience that we're living through is going to sensitize us to prepare better in the future so as the climate changes we in different infectious disease angle what you really need Is you need better surveillance. You need to be able to respond much faster than we did. I mean, to some degree, humanity responded very rapidly within a month of this organ of COVID-19. We know what it was. It had been sequenced. People were working already to curtail travel. Uh, Cities were put under quarantine, but it was not enough. And based on what we know today, you we're going to need even more rapid. Type of responses in the future, and we got to come, we got to think of this as a species, not as a nationality. When these things, this affect all of us. But I, I remain optimistic that, that this is a huge wake up call uh, how vulnerable societies are to to disruption. Another thing that would that could help. Well, I, I am a believer that you know, we gotta try to reverse climate change. Think about it, we know what's going on. We know the physics, we know the chemistry. Uh, this is not an insoluble problem. One of the consequences of of the COVID epidemic, uh, again, being an optimist, uh, is that it may give humanity more of a sense that we're all in this together and that we better we better do something about carbon in the atmosphere. to to prevent something like this, because you're absolutely right. I think that as the world will begin to warm, uh, everything will change, and we may be seeing more and more of this phenomenon.
1: Dr Arturo Casadevaal there, as he mentioned climate change could bring in a brand new wave of infectious diseases that we're not yet aware of, that's just one of the ways that climate change could impact us in the future, it's truly, it's truly terrifying, but let's just rein back into the current situation. Here in the west we don't really see that many impacts of climate change, not yet anyway, uh, but there are a lot of people living in the global south that are already feeling those impacts rising sea levels, food poverty and climate change refugees, for example. Like with COVID-19, we've seen that low income and communities with people of colour have been disproportionately affected and the same goes with climate change. It is, to be quite frank, it's a race issue. Jocelyn Longdon is a climate change and race activist and founder of the Instagram community Climate in Colour. In her work, she leads workshops and posts
3: about how the climate change crisis disproportionately affects people of colour. The climate crisis and race are interlinked just by the inherent nature of how it plays out and who it affects. So um, around the world, historically, um, countries in the West or the global North have contributed to um, climate change for the longest periods of time. They were the first to industrialise, they were the first to start using fossil fuels. whilst many countries in the Global South, uh, you know, didn't have that access and even till today um, there are two billion people around the world who don't even have access to electricity and so aren't using fossil fuels to the extent at which we in the West are. The way in which it's interlinked with race is the fact that those people in the Global South who have Contributed the least to the global climate crisis are the first to be affected. So, small island nation states uh, will be the first to have to see the effects of rising sea levels and are actually seeing those already today. Um, Droughts, um, natural disasters that are happening at a frequency that is not natural, due to anthropogenic kind of human-focused climate emissions. So, they are the ones that are suffering. they're suffering now whilst us in the west we haven't really even touched the tip of the iceberg of the effects of climate change we're we're pretty sheltered from any of, of of the impacts but on a more um on an even further race basis people living in um the most polluted areas of our western countries or western cities are also um disproportionately people of color and so whether it's in the global south or in the global north people of color are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis and the areas where um companies and governments decide to um dispose of waste dispose of toxic waste burn, wet, um, get rid of any sort of waste that is harmful to the environment or to people are in predominantly POCs. So whether that's on a local scale, like in America, where countless waste facilities, recycling facilities are located in neighbourhoods that are predominantly black and predominantly POC, or on a more global scale, where we in the West ship out all of our waste, to all of our plastic, all of our recycling. We're using South Asia as, uh, as our dustbin, basically, and we are we're kind of overtly and covertly saying that you mean nothing. You're worth trash. You can have ours because we don't want to deal with it here. It's too expensive to process here, and we don't want to do the right thing by disposing of this waste properly. Um, so your life doesn't matter um, as much as ours. You can deal with the toxic pollution and the air pollution and and so on. And I think people are becoming to see these uh, trends and you know there are countless reports now on deaths by asthma due to high air pollution I think in London um, Newham which is one of the most diverse um, boroughs I think there are something like over 200 different languages spoken there I might be wrong but I think that that's the statistic um, and they have the worst pollution in, in the whole of London it, it's just devastating for the community um, and for their health there but it, it, it can't just be a coincidence. Now we've had reports from countless studies and countless bodies that are just showing that um, like for like, whether it's different boroughs, different um, regions of the UK, different regions of the world, pollution um, is, is much harder felt in uh, poorer, usually POC areas. I can't see climate without colonialism and I can't see climate without racism. And that's not popular or a common way of seeing it. The climate crisis is seen as a purely scientific issue and the colonial aspects are forgotten. We're seeing colonial behaviours repeat themselves in our new quest to find climate solutions. So historically, we have had land grabs and, you know, the huge scramble for Africa and all of these colonial expeditions going out to take land on indigenous peoples and use it um, for their... their, um, privilege or for their benefit and the same is happening now where we in the west are finally clocking on and thinking oh wait the way we're living is not sustainable we need to make changes and we're expecting those changes or the resources that we need to make those changes to lie on the global south who themselves don't have resources so a few examples is um carbon offsetting we love talking about um, tree planting and all these huge tree planting um, initiatives by governments and by organizations which also great but the fact is that um, with a lot of these um, systems Indigenous peoples are being moved out of their indigenous lands. They're being killed. They're being evicted. Um, rainforests are being cut down um, to plant tree plantations, which doesn't make sense. Uh, why would you cut down the living and breathing biodiverse forest to plant a farm of trees? Um, so all of these injustices are happening around the world in the name of sustainability. Even, for example, the the um, materials that we need to mine for and um, for um, for renewable energies such as you know wind turbines or storage batteries, things like lithium, things like cobalt, they're mined for in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Some of the time, child labourers are used for these mining jobs, and so it's very important to to talk about colonialism because we see it as something of the past, when actually it, it continues to persist today, just in a more benign way and in a way that is used to justify kind of the saving of the West. And just inflicting more pain on the global south.
1: Jocelyn Longdon there. In our interview, she pointed out that perhaps one of the main things stopping people from making meaningful change towards the climate crisis is ignorance. And she's got a point, you know, if we don't put in the work to do that deep research into things that, you know, we just regard as part of our daily lives, we may not even realise what kind of impact it is having on someone maybe on the other side of the world and of course the impact it's having to our planet she also pointed out that a lot of traditional banks invest really heavily into the fossil fuel industry gag i did some research into my bank and found that in 2019 they invested 15 billion dollars into the fossil fuel industry i was furious and i am definitely switching banks but doesn't that just exactly highlight the importance of doing that research But as I mentioned at the start of the show, this pandemic has shown that we can really make significant changes to reduce the risk, and the same should be applied with the climate crisis. There's loads that you can do, sweetie. You can use public transport or walk or cycle. You should keep up to date with politics, invest in your community, uh, make sure that you buy your food locally, you can eat less meat, grow your own food uh, make sure that you do research on what companies do, you know, where they're investing their money and the practices behind making the products that you buy. Uh, you can join a climate change group. There are loads out there, you know, Extinction Rebellion and 350.org, for example. You can even take short showers. And one of the most important things is you have to be willing to adapt. But I'd like to take this opportunity to give a huge, huge thank you to my guests on the show today. Dr Arturo Casadevall, Rupert Reed, Kim Bryan and Jocelyn Longdon. I
3: think that people don't understand how much power that they have with their money and that making the right decisions can, can change industries. Because if the economy depends on what we buy and what we spend on, and we can change the economy to invest in and produce products that we want and the products that are positive and ethical and environmentally friendly.
0: There is some real hope that comes from the coronavirus crisis. It's it's a sign of uh, of hope that governments, as you say, were in some cases uh, able and willing to act decisively to prevent the kind of damage that other countries have suffered. Many countries, uh, including the UK, have made dramatic changes to deal with the the economic effects of the coronavirus crisis. Uh, I would also add that I think the shared experience of vulnerability that we've had during this pandemic could be so valuable because it showed us what really mattered in our lives, you know? It showed us that we care about our families and our loved ones more than we do about GDP that love and care are what's really important, and the NHS clap, for example, is a nice symbol in this connection. And if we could only kind of apply this kind of, these kind of lessons and transfer this sense of vulnerability and all the meanings it had for us from the intensity of the coronavirus pandemic situation to the more long and drawn-out, more or less permanent uh, eco and climate emergency that is a hundred times um, deeper and greater and graver, if we could do that, if we could make that transfer, then everything could be changed. So maybe this experience of shared vulnerability that we've had, maybe it might be enough to stop us on the reckless path that we're on. Maybe it might yet be the making of us.
4: I remain optimistic that humanity is going to put in place more defenses into the future. we got to think of this as a species, not as a nationality, when these things affect all of us. I like to think that it's a huge wake up call how vulnerable societies are to disruption.
2: The climate crisis, is, I feel, is very much all hands on deck type of situation. I get that, like some of the changes we need to make might feel really harsh for people, or people aren't ready to do that, and that's why it's quite a journey we've got to go on. And you know, I like this expression: "to change everything, we need everyone." And that, you know, that much is true. There's no point in a bunch of us changing, and you know, everyone else doing something else.
3: I like to see the movement as a, a globe of different people doing different things. So in a movement, everyone has a different role. There are the activists who shout, there are the activists that go to protests, but there are also the healers, the musicians, the artists, and there are the comforters, and there are the poets, and there are the writers, and there are the farmers, and there are, the, you know, there, there are so many people that have a separate role in this movement. And if everyone focused on doing their role, the thing that they're good at, and the thing that they're comfortable at doing, then more people would be involved in the climate movement and we would be much closer to making change, I think.